Okay, wonderful. We are continuing on in our study of protology, and um, I want to kind of pick up where we left off last week. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter uh, 3, uh, we will kind of resume what we were looking at there. Okay, if you remember last week, um, I sort of brought in a few different aspects. Uh, we talked about verses 1 uh, through 7, but especially the first couple of verses of chapter 3, uh, what we uh, called the intrusion of the anti-Lord, what uh, Meredith Klein has uh, uh, defined as the serpent. Uh, because uh, he is not just serpent, he is not just Satan, he is not just a deceiver and all of that, but what he's actually trying to accomplish in the fall of man uh, is actually uh, to set himself as a uh, sort of a of an antichrist, um, but he is also anti-Lord in the sense that, remember... Um, Sorry to switch colors on you here, but we went for we the last point we we covered was that there is an assault on God's covenant order, and we saw that because if you go back to chapter two verses fifteen through seventeen, there uh, what has been historically called the covenant of works. Uh, if you don't like the concept, or at least you don't like the word covenant of works, because you say, well, the word covenant is not found. Well, what theologians are saying is that the the basic components of a covenant are there, where you have the parties involved, you also have the stipulations, and you have a uh, you have a, both a promise of blessing and cursing found in this primitive, uh, Adamic uh, arrangement. Okay, and so the reason why we're calling the serpent anti-Lord, however, is because he's trying to set himself up as a, a competitive covenant to God's covenant arrangement. So, in a sense, what we're saying is that the serpent is trying to um, sort of establish his own covenant order in a very de- perverted, uh, sort of, you know, demonic, dark uh, type of way that would undermine uh, God's covenant uh, with man, and that's what he's doing. So, uh, I want to look a little bit closer at this now. Uh, if you want more on that, how many did you guys... Do you guys appreciate that? Because, I don't know, for me, I learned a lot uh, in studying about uh, the serpent in this way, right? I mean, for so long, it's kind of like we, we, we get a very basic understanding of the serpent in Genesis. And what we conclude is just quite simply that, well, he was just there presenting a temptation to the woman, right? We don't understand maybe the depth of it until we kind of we pan out and we see the greater covenantal context of the temptation and the fall, Right? So it was very helpful for me. Uh, but one of the things uh, that he is also doing is that he is trying to present himself as a revealer. Um, and the reason why, of course, is because of what he does. He speaks, and then he's promising to the woman a new knowledge, right? That he has knowledge. So let's read again here this section, beginning in verse... Oh, we can go back to verse 1. That's fine. Uh, not, uh, it's never, um, enough to, you know, it's always good to kind of reiterate these things, uh, read. I told my wife yesterday, you know, my wife is a profound scripture memorization uh, person. You guys know that about her? Um, uh, yeah, what, what, what would you call that? 
Um, but she is really good at memorizing scripture. I told her, you know, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 should be the next chapters that you memorize in the Bible because they're so foundational. I mean, I wish I had the whole text memorized, you know, because, um, you know, we make an argument that we have before, just like protology. What is protology? You guys are going to be like professionals at this when we're, we're done with the section Sunday school, right? But protology leads to what? Yeah. The eschaton or eschatology, eschaton for short, right? Where what we're saying, what theologians are saying is that when you look at protology, which is Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3, you are getting sort of the plumb line that then is followed throughout redemptive history until you reach the consummation, right, and revelation. So really, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, there are so many parallels, just to give you an example of Revelation 21 through 22. Uh, there are so many parallels going back. You know, if you read uh, Revelation 21, 22, you're going to find so many links going back to Genesis 1 and th- 1 through 3. Amazing. Amazing. So it shows you that protology is so foundational. And so, um, Trish, you got to memorize Genesis 1 through 3. It's that simple. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so uh, the fact that he is asserting himself as a revealer. Look at verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And I, what I said is verse one, a he's kind of giving us what is real, or what is true so far. Right. Uh, this is true so far uh, versus what the serpent is going to speak in form of lies. Uh, this is absolutely true. The ser- you know, uh, Satan did come in the form of a serpent. He was crafty. He was a beast of the field. He was someone that the Lord God had made. Um, but that's the end of it, right? And then it says, and he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any of the trees of the, gar- any tree of the garden? So, where does his revelation, or we, we could even stretch this out to the, Study of epistemology, right? What is epistemology, everybody? The study of knowledge, right? Um, how do you know what you know? What is the source of knowledge? What, is, what are the rudimentary aspects of knowing, right? So what is the serpent doing? He's laying down his own epistemology. He is be trying to become the source, the true source of divine knowledge, right? And in that way, he is anti-Lord, right? So that's just a... Very basic. But look at what, what goes on here. It says, uh, he, so he begins his epistemology by undermining God's epistemology or God's knowledge or God's law. Um, because in, in saying this, we have a direct parallel going all the way back to chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is why we say it is an assault on God's covenantal order because the serpent is directly attacking what God's law was when he laid down this covenantal arrangement back in chapter 2, because there the Lord said in verse 16, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But notice how the serpent twists it. He says, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, right? So in republishing God's words, he he twists them, right? And what does Second Peter chapter 3 I think it's verse 16. What does that say um, uh, about those who 
twist scripture to their own destruction, right? Sort of Satan here, the serpent here, being the ultimate heretic, right? He is the ultimate heretic who twists the knowledge of God, not only to his destruction, but in attempted to destroy all of humanity. Uh, really amazing. So what else happens here? The woman then responds to the serpent. Notice there, uh, we made a big deal out of this last week where we talked about the fact that uh, part of um, Adam and Eve's uh, priestly duties were to tend and to keep the garden. Going back to 2.15, go back to 2.15, it says it right there. Then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Uh, and some would say that what what their task would have been was to protect it. And then going back to their original Adamic commission. What was their Adamic commission? Well, part of it, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, we are told that part of their commission was to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth. But watch this, to subdue it and to rule over the fish, over the birds. Watch this. And every living thing that moves on the earth. And so immediately they're failing in their Adamic commission already in the sense that she has opened up the Pandora's box of having a uh, a conversation with the serpent, placing herself not over the serpent where she belonged, but on the same level as the serpent, as somebody that with whom you have intercourse with, fellowship with, conversation with, right? Um, any questions or comments or statements? Feel free to interrupt at any time and ask a question. If you don't, I'll get going. I'll turn this into another sermon, I promise. And no, I will. So, but amazing, right? Fascinating. And then it says, from the, the, the woman said to the serpent, from the trees, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Uh, by the way, um, you know, I don't want to get the words of Genesis wrong here because let's be honest, protology, precious real estate, right? You only have three little chapters, right? And what I'm suggesting is every word counts. The way that everything is phrased is important. And so uh, tell me if this is your experience, but I've been surprised time and again by, gen- by, by these chapters in Genesis, right, um, of, of just kind of assuming, yeah, I know the story. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got it. I know the story. Right? The serpent, the woman, deception, fall. That, that's, I mean, how much more is there to say, right? But when you really pay attention to the details Oh, the theology that it yields, right? There's so much there if we just uh, take our time with it and really uh, try to unpack every phrase, every word, every sentence. Just amazing, amazing. Um, it says, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And then, uh, so here the woman is attempting to republish the covenant with the serpent, but what does she do to it? She adds to it. She's already, because her epistemology did not remain pure, she allowed the serpent to influence her thinking. She already became, in a sense, uh, influenced in her mind and already began sort of, um, uh, one theologian said that it's evidence of Eve's resentment at the covenant stipulations, right? It's already kind of creeping that way uh, because it already seems as if 
she's playing right into the tactic of the serpent, which one of the tactics of the serpent is going to be to get the woman to think that God is actually a malevolent over overlord, right? That he is sort of has, he doesn't really have her best interest in mind, that he is sort of hiding things from her and not really out to bless her. Uh, so that she needs to take matters in her own hands and bless herself, since God is really not trying to bless uh, the woman. Very, very uh, interesting uh, language that's going on here. Then the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, watch this, you shall not die, right? You shall not die. What has the serpent done here? Tell, tell, tell me what he's done here. What's that? So he lied, no question about it. And in order to lie, what is he doing? He's contradicting God. He's instituting, and that's kind of where I'm chasing is that that line of thought. He's instituting his own truth, with which, which assumes what? That's right. That's right. So what does that assume about the serpent here? Right? It assumes that he, in fact has epistemology right that that he that he in fact is a source of knowledge uh, i would say he's acting as if he is omniscient right yeah he tried to assume a position that was on par with god right i will be as the most high um yeah so Amazing, right? The serpent uh, tries to establish himself as a source of divine knowledge, which makes him a revealer, right? Um, but God is the revealer. God has already, remember, go back once again, um, go back to chapter one. And again, what happens is that what is, um, what is chapter one all about? Creation. And what did we what did we determine about creation, right? What is the created order? You remember kind of what I was talking about? What was the created order? What were the heavens and the earth? What did they symbolize? Anyone? Setting up a temple for himself. That's right. That's right. It is the cosmic temple, right? Uh, and we take that because when you look at later temples like Tabernacle, and then um, uh, Solomon's temple is that what you find is that these actual architectural structures are are built they're built with creational language in built into them, uh, including the heavens and the earth, the sea, the earth, the laver was a symbol of the sea, the altar a symbol of the earth. Uh, you had all of these cosmic images in the temple. Uh, the curtains were symbolic of the heavens. Uh, the stars, the luminaries were stitched into the fabric of the curtains in the temple, stuff like that, where you're wondering, wow, where did they get the idea to do all this, right? Well, they got it from Genesis chapter one, <laughs> right? As God is building his temple. And then as was customary in the ancient world, that the, 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 the kings after building a temple and after controlling a chaotic environment, like in a war, which goes back to, some say back to, um, the opening verses of Genesis 1 where it says that uh, the world was what? Formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, just showing how God, the primordial chaos of the world had to be overcome, 
right? And the same thing you find in John chapter 1, the parallel to Genesis chapter 1, where the light comes into the darkness, right? And it says that the darkness does not overcome the light. Right? So it's the same concepts, okay? But um, I'm trying not to lose my train of thought here for a second because <laughs> I'm trying to make a connection between... Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. So the temple structure of God, the temple imagery of God, and then what does God do in his temple is he puts his image in the temple, just like the ancient kings would put their image in the temple. And where's that found? Well, in chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right? And what else did people do? Uh, what else did people do in their temples? Um, uh this was a common practice as well, is that they would put their covenants and their treaties inside the temple. Where did God's law go? Ark of the Covenant in the temple, right? And so just another sort of temple sanctuary uh, connection there. But as image bearers, right, uh, the, the man and the woman were to rule on behalf of God uh, and they were to, and, and so what happens is, as he creates them in this image, then this is what I'm trying to suggest. Then he gives the man and the woman their the law, right? Let them rule over the fish of the sea. So he begins then to set down laws. So uh, one theologian, Graham Goldsworthy, says that what's happening here is it's it's it's. Um, What does the covenant order look like? Well, it looks like God's people in God's place under God's rule. Um, And I would add to that with God's word, right? And that's exactly what the serpent is trying to counteract because he is anti. He is the anti-Lord. Remember, we talked about this last week. Satan doesn't mainly try to deceive people with atheism, right? Uh, I have a good friend who is a Muslim scholar, uh, meaning he's a scholar on Islam, and he was sitting with a group of uh, very prominent apologists, um, and uh, they were all sitting around talking about apologetics and the books that they're publishing and and uh, what they're working on, and he noticed everything had to do with relativism, atheism, and that was kind of like the main thing. It was mainly atheism, relativism, postmodernism. And, and, and very atheistic, right? Agnosticism, stuff like that. And he said, you know, of all the world, um, your target audience, if it's atheism, right? Um, how much, uh, if this is a pie of the world, how much of the percentage of the world belongs to your target audience? Less than 1%. You know what he told him? He said, everyone else is either Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. That's a B. (laughs) Buddhist, Muslim, or Hindu of the unbelieving world in the world. And here you guys are spending thousands of dollars and time and energy, and every last one of you guys is concerned with 1% of the entire population of planet Earth. What are you doing about Hinduism? You know what I mean? It's just the room went quiet, you know. The serpent is not so much concerned with getting people to say there is no God. The serpent is concerned with getting people to say, has God really said? 
right? Has God really said? Um, he is trying to set himself up as a revealer of divine knowledge. Uh, I don't know if we're going to... Um, okay, so then not just revealer of divine knowledge, but actually, let's get right to it, also covenant Lord. He wants to be the covenant Lord is what he wants to do. So he's usurping, he's usurping the lordship of God, the covenant order of God, not just to create chaos, but to try to replace God. Uh, uh, remember in, in Genesis so far, he has been called what? Uh, so far and up to this point, he's already been revealed as, uh, uh, what is it? God, I'm sorry. God has already been revealed as Yahweh Elohim, right? Lord and God. And God really was the word used for God in chapter 1 to express that he is creator and maker of all things. More of a general term. But Lord Yahweh is then brought into the picture to establish God as a covenant Lord, right? And, And guess what? What do you find in the rest of the Old Testament? That whenever the Bible in the Old Testament is trying to stress God's covenant lordship, it uses Yahweh, not Adonai, not Elohim. It uses Yahweh. And so already in protology, we are being presented to the God who is Lord God or yeah, covenant Lord and God. And this is what he's trying to do in a sense. Now get this, right? In a sense, what the serpent is seeking to create is what? You want to talk about Antichrist. He wants to build a new covenant with mankind. And let me let me read to you one one quote and let's see if we can unpack this. Remember I told you that uh, I'm following Meredith Klein very closely here because I thought all the other biblical theologians and commentators that I found just really did not go as deep into these chapters as, as Meredith Klein. And many of them, when they do, they actually follow Meredith Klein. You know what I mean? That's kind of the, that's what you do when you study, right? You kind of picking up a book and you're like, well, he keeps quoting this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it makes sense. I better go read that guy, right? Uh, that's actually how I became a Calvinist. It was uh, back in the 90s and everybody was reading John Piper. How many of you guys heard of John Piper? <laughs> and then, a sister in the church said, oh, John Piper's just repeating what he learned from Jonathan Edwards. And I heard that statement. I thought, oh, so I better go read Edwards then. <laughs> and then I did. I went and picked up a copy of Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, and that was it. I was, it was all over after that. You know, it's just like, no wonder John Piper who is who he is. <laughs> you read Jonathan Edwards, that's what's going to happen to you. You know what I mean? Um, so Klein is very foundational. That's why I'm trying to build this case. Uh, Meredith Klein, by the way, died in, I think he, I want to say he died in 2007. So recently. Uh, and he was a theologian at Westminster in San Diego, Escondido, uh, for many, many years, and then eventually went off to Gordon Conwell to be a, a, a professor there as well, and wrote many, many, many amazing books. Now, one of the things about Meredith Klein is that he's very difficult to read. Um, he, he's kind of a weirdo. <laughs> He, 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 he even makes up his own words that don't exist. And he does it without any shame whatsoever. <laughs> he just makes up a word, a word, you know? Like, nobody in the history of the church ever 
use the phrase anti-Lord, but he did just because he can. <laughs> you know what I mean, and uh, and then matter of fact, they've like compiled lists of vocabulary terms he just makes up out of thin air. You know what I mean? Anyway, so uh, so it's kind of what you would expect for a seminal theologian who has done a lot of groundbreaking work in this area. Listen to what he says. Although Satan had now blatantly accused the Creator, the One who is light and love of being, in fact, darkness and hate. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying that because, notice what the serpent says here, you surely will not die, verse 4, right? So he is already undermining, in a sense, accusing the covenant Lord for being malevolent, right? For actually being deceptive himself. (laughs) So so the anti-Lord is not only seeking to supplant the Lord, but literally to trade places with him. So that at the end of the, the text, Yahweh Elohim becomes the serpent. Amazing, right? Just amazing. Now, does that remind you of false religions or what? Right? How about cults? You talk long enough to Jehovah Witness, that Jesus, the true the Orthodox Jesus, they believe is evil. Right? We'll send you to hell if you believe in the biblical Jesus. Right? Jesus, the real, you know, this is the battle of worldviews, right? I mean, they're saying the Jesus you believe in, the biblical Jesus, is actually the Jesus that will damn you if you believe in him. Amazing. It all comes back to the father of what? Lies. Um, so then he says, the woman did not react. Listen to this now. Remember we talked about that they were priests and kings to their God, Adam and Eve, and that's what they were in God's cosmic temple. They were supposed to rule on God's behalf. That's kingship. And then they were supposed to keep the garden, right? Cultivate and keep the garden, which is language that is picked up later in places like Numbers to refer to the priestly duty of the Levites, right? So they were kings and priests unto their God, uh, but they failed in their mission. So, Meredith Klein says, the woman did not react to the blasphemy with shock and abhorrence, right? Instead, she was attracted by the evil spell. She gave credence to the tidings of the advent of the anti-Lord who came to liberate mankind. Listen, he came to liberate mankind from what? Listen now, his vassalage under the malevolent oppressor. What is what is Klein saying there? Anybody know? Right. What's that? Yes, but what he's saying is that 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 the serpent is seeking to liberate mankind from being uh, vassals. What is a vassal? Remember? That's right. That's right. It is a let's say lowercase king who pleads allegiance to the high king, right? And he is under the great king. And so it's kind of a delegated king. It's a vice regent. It's uh, somebody that rules on behalf of a greater king and then they have a treaty, an agreement, a covenant together. And so what Meredith Klein is saying is the anti-lord is there to liberate mankind from his vassalage under the malevolent oppressor. So he has to try to get mankind to view God as a malevolent oppressor. Malevolent meaning a, a evil oppressor. 
He doesn't want our good. He's keeping things from us. See, he becomes the source of epistemology. He knows better than God. That's what he's trying to establish. And then it says, he came to show him how to assert his innate rights effectively and how to develop his full potential from the level of mankind to godhood. Now, what what ends up happening is that what the serpent is ultimately gunning for is to tempt uh, the woman, here we go, with a monistic worldview. What is monism? Anybody know? So philosophically, what is the what does monism speak about? So monos, one, so you're on the right track. Right, so monos is, monism is the worldview that all is one, right? Uh, kind of comes back down to, um, uh, and then the, the opposite of this is what? Atomism. Atomism is that all is separate, right? Think of like atomic particles, right? Nothing is the same. Right, everything has is is compartmentalized. So, so monism is, and then in philosophy, this became the controversy of the one and the. That's right. How did you know that, Chris? It's <laughs> a good guess. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, even before Plato the pre-Socratic philosophers were debating the philosophy of the one and the many. Is the universe one? Is the universe many? Is the universe indissoluble or is the universe, uh, uh, you know, so, so, uh, so, uh, atomistic that it can never come together, right? So we're talking about, uh, I think Parmenides and Heraclitus, uh, those type of philosophers. You know what I mean? But ultimately, what the serpent is seeking to get man to to believe in is monism, the idea that they can be themselves one with God, that they can be God, that they can be divine. Just really interesting um, what he's trying to get them to do here. So a lot of heresy is being thrown around here by the devil. Um, and then Meredith Klein says this. He says, in the woman's heart, listen to this. In the woman's heart, Satan has replaced Yahweh Elohim as covenant overlord. So Meredith Klein sees that what the woman has done, in a sense, is that she has subscribed to a new covenant and to a new religion. She's now following the religion of the serpent. And this is what's even so amazing about that is what do we have in the text that follows? Look at verse 5. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. See that? Knowing good and evil. Now watch this now. When the woman saw the tree that it was good for uh, for food. Now this is, this is also, um, uh, this, is, this is what I want to do here. Uh, let's see here. Back up a little bit here. I want to. I want to just kind of walk us through, um, where is that at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens is, look at the reversal, right? The reversal of the woman is that now she says, now she says to herself that the tree is in fact good for food. So no longer is it a forbidden tree. Now it's a tree 
that is a potential, right? A, pot- a potential tree for goodness for her, <laughs> right? But what, what did we learn about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Chapter 2, verse 17, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. What did the serpent say? You shall not die. Furthermore, look at verse 5. For God knows, and then he uses the same formula. In the day that you eat from it. (laughs) See that? See how he hijacks little phrases from God? In the day that you eat from it. Chapter 2. In the day that you eat from it. So whose word are you going to believe? The day that you eat from it, you'll be like God. Well, real quick, so let me get this out so you can hold me accountable. What happens is that there's a transference of the sacramental tree of life. Go back to chapter 2. It says, right, that, um, let's see here. Where's the tree of life? No, no, I'm saying it's, part, it's it's even prior to that. Is it nine? Yeah. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused it to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. There it is. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees there. One symbolizes judgment, discernment, good and evil. But it's prohibited. One one symbolizes life. And so what people are saying is that the tree of life is actually a sacramental tree. It is a ordinance that eventually would impart life to the human, right? So had they passed probation, they would have had access to the tree of life, eaten the tree of life, and been confirmed in a state of righteousness because they obeyed. Had they obeyed the prohibition, we don't know how long that probation would have lasted. We don't know how long that uh, that time period of testing would have been. But, uh, you know, we, we are made to, to believe that had they passed probation, they would have been confirmed in their righteousness by the tree of life. But what the serpent is getting them to believe is that, in fact, the tree that possesses life is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is the sacramental tree now. See that? It's just a, a total reversal of everything when you start going down the down the line here. Um, any questions about that? Comments, questions? Yes, sir? Do you believe that Eve had the exact same knowledge that Adam had? Could be the things that you quoted from the Genesis 8 be accounting of God's knowledge to Adam? Good. Yeah, good reason. Um, I don't know. I don't know if she had the same amount of knowledge. I would guess so, uh, because, and that, and that's a, that brings up a good point because if you, if you notice in verse, uh, six, I know we often say, where was Adam, right? Because Adam is seemingly not around. We, you know, and, and, and that's right, and that's true. We should build, you know, premises off of that. You know, we could do marriage you know, uh, uh, messages and lessons from, you know, uh, Adam was abdicating and because of that he left his wife open to deception, you know, all of that. But notice, I mean, the text kind of doesn't give us maybe some of the details that we would like, right? 
because right after she eats, she took from the fruit and ate of it, then she gave also to her husband. Well, if her husband was so far away, right, from the whole serpent episode, I mean, we're not told. I mean, did, did she give him to eat in a few hours? Was Adam out hiking? I mean, we don't know how far he really was and how quick that exchange took place, right? Um, but I, that's a good question uh, because you're right. In verse 15, for example, of chapter 2, uh, the man took, uh, excuse me, God took the man and put him into the garden, right, to cultivate it. And the Lord commanded the man saying this because, again, he is the covenantal head, right? So I don't know that I can answer that question emphatically, you know. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, you bring up an, you bring up a, something really interesting actually there because if you think about it, when she ate, she did not die. There's a sense in which she actually did not die, right? As a matter of fact, it's not until Adam ate that what? Their eyes were open. Now, here's a question for you because you know you go on skeptics web, websites, right? This is a contradiction in the Bible, <laughs> right? It says right there. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Eve ate of it and didn't die. Adam ate of it and he didn't die. It says their eyes were open. What gives? Right? So then we have to figure out different ways of interpreting that death. What do you think? Yes, ma'am. That's a common answer. They, they spiritually died. Is that everyone's position in here? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's a good position. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Correct. That's right. Correct. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, is it possible? I'll just commit this to you, okay? This is, don't, don't, don't. Don't hold me on this, okay? But but is it possible that when God says, in that day you shall surely die, um, that we are to interpret that along covenantal lines so that in a sense we can say they died covenantally. They were no longer in covenant with God, right? 
they no longer had a, co- a living covenant relationship with God. But certainly that's part of the spiritual death that uh, that Haley's talking about. It's it's certainly a spiritual death. So that's right. Yeah, it it, they, it demanded that, right? So it was kind of like uh, a picture of red- the the need now for redemption, right? But but somehow the death has to apply to the man and the woman, right? Because God says you will surely die. Not something will die on your behalf, but you will surely die. So, so how did they die? Well, we know this, um, you know, like some have pointed out, they actually began to undergo the process of death at that instant. They, they, they became mortal, right? And then eventually, 900 years later, they did die, right? Isn't it amazing they lived 900 years? Amazing. I just saw a picture of a guy who's 145. Uh huh. What's, what's going on out here? Is this like a riot going on out here? What's going on? Oh, that's what it is. Okay, I'm not used to that much chatter. I was like, are we a mega church all of a sudden? In terms of like the words and the Mm. It's just the the devil messing with you. Don't get into all those isms and schisms. Wow, discern. sad because I like their music too. It's got they got some good tunes, you know what I mean. But too bad, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean that's serpent-like, you know. What I mean, it sounds good, you know, puts you in a worshipful mood. But you know what they're really teaching in there is just like it's rotten. Anyway, you know. Okay, let's let me just keep walking down this. Okay. Um. So what happens is because Klein says this that what happens eventually is that not only is the woman adopting a new covenant order, we can say a new religion, she believes in a new way, right? But (laughs) Meredith Klein calls her the first missionary of this new religion, and Adam is her first convert, (laughs) right? So she is a, she becomes a herald of a false gospel, right? That doesn't actually result in life, it results in death. She was the first woman preacher. She was the first Paula White. No, I won't go there. Is that bad? What? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing what happens here? Meredith Klein says, by her fiat, her own decree, it was no longer the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be forbidden a forbidden tree, but a desirable tree. Desirable, should the truth be told, to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
she became worldly. She also believed that the tree was a source of wisdom greater than God's law. The tree was desirable for what? To make one wise. So no longer is the woman thinking the thoughts of God after her or after, after, you know, after him, excuse me. She's not thinking God's thoughts after him anymore. Now she's thinking her own thoughts. She was undermining God's wisdom and judging him an inadequate source of knowledge. She also perverted the sacramental nature of the original covenant by deeming the judgment tree the true tree of life. Finally, in eating, not only did Eve and Adam break the covenant, they also perverted the marriage order of the creation ordinances. Eve failed to help her husband and Adam failed to lead his wife in their priestly duties in the garden. Um, I want to just kind of end with a comforting thought, ironically. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they, sew, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Why, why is that an encouraging note? Because it shows us that in fact, the covenant order, um, it was not truly perverted. Right? Yes, there was an attempt to undermine God's covenant law, God's covenant order, the covenant community. But guess what? If we go back to the original covenant, what happened in the fall is part of the covenant. So God's law prevailed. <laughs> you will surely die. Right. And it says their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. So immediately a shameful death-like understanding of themselves, you know, was activated upon eating. And so what we're seeing here now is that the penalty of the covenant is in force. What it shows us is that God's covenant law is invariant. It doesn't change even when people fail, right? God's law stands, Right? God's will is going to be done. And there's so much more, there's so much more, there's so much more. Uh, I, I don't have time to get into this. Uh, then maybe the next thing is I'll, I'll just point out is that a result of this, the anti-Lord actually becomes the head of a new humanity. And what do you find in the Bible? What you find in the Bible is that in fact, he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving so that they will not see the glorious light of the gospel. What do you see in 1 John chapter 4? That false teachers are what? Antichrist. Because they come in the spirit of Antichrist. What do we see in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19? The whole world is actually in the sway of the wicked one. What do we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? We see that now what we're under is that there's a spirit of the age. There's a spirit of the air that works in the sons of disobedience. Everyone is under this satanic deception. And the only way to be freed from it is through Christ. Christ.